Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Second Act Actors. I'm your host, Dr. Janet McMorty, and I'm still a medical doctor simultaneously trying to pursue a career in acting. My guest this week is Nadia George. Nadia is a registered therapist, a certified trauma-integrated clinician, and actor. She is an incredible human being. If you are not following Nadia on social media, I highly recommend pushing the pause button on this episode right now, going over to her Instagram and following her on social media. She does incredible things in this world. Her advocacy work, her acting, her amazing work as a therapist. Oh my goodness, get over there and follow her. She has an incredible story to tell. I'm so excited for you to hear it. Please enjoy the most incredible human being, Nadia George. How did you get into this acting business? Yeah, it's kind of interesting because I used to do community theater as a kid and I really, really loved it. Um, and then, you know, we become teenagers and life takes us in different directions. And uh, I think, too, I moved around a lot as a kid, so I didn't really get a chance to, you know, settle into any kind of community. But I, I always really loved it, loved being in front of the camera. And then, you know, had my son at 18. So that really kind of took my life for a whole spin. And it was when I got back into university, uh, I would say probably around like 2011, um, I actually was able to do theater as an elective for a year. And I thought, this is amazing. One, because, you know, in my head, I'm like, oh, this will be a fluff course. It'll help my GPA. No, our theater teacher was pretty tough, actually. (laughs) And, um, and I just, I realized how much I missed it. You know, I was going to school for social work. Um, and I am a full-time therapist, but it's, it was just such a passion for me. And so realizing how much I missed it, I was like, okay, I got to find a way back into this. And so it was a few years, um, before I really kind of took the dive. My son was around 16 at that time and he was in a band and he was doing all these things. And I thought, you know what? He's got his life going right now, I now have an opportunity to kind of, you know, chase my own passions. So really, I just started kind of in, you know, the indie, non-paid <laughs> situations um, and just really found that I I loved it. I loved acting. And so I started working on a project called Pinebox Fast with a director. <clears throat> and I realized that this is something that I wanted to do and I really needed to start taking it seriously. So, of course, you know, like many of us, we go the background actor route first (laughs) to see what it's like on set, um, you know, to get used to all of the, you know, cut, sound, all those kinds of things. Also realized I hate background acting. I think we really need (laughs) to look at how we treat background actors. I think that's a whole other conversation, though, that could take, you know, three sessions. And I just recognized how much I didn't enjoy that, um, but I loved being on set. So, uh, yeah, I started taking classes, um, and I reached out to Gloria Mann, actually, was one of the people that I had met very, very early on in my acting career. And, you know, she gave me just a whole bunch of list of, of people, told me things I needed to do, get my headshots done, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I did sign up with this one agency. I'll keep their name <laughs> quiet. But um, I fell into the trap of, you know, spending money on headshots that didn't turn out to be good. Actually, the poor makeup artist was crying during the whole entire time of my headshot shoot. <laughs> She had just broken up with her boyfriend. And I, as a therapist, I'm like sitting there and I'm, you know, okay, let's talk this out. Let's, as, as she's trying to do my makeup, it was, it was an interesting experience, one for the books for sure. And um, just realizing that the talent agency was really just more about, you know, making their money and, and not really furthering my career or really caring about what I was good at or 
helping me work on the things that I needed or I was, you know, weaker on. And so I, I pulled out of that and um, kind of took a step back. And it was a friend of mine sent me like a breakdown. I didn't have an agent at the time. And it was for one of those docudramas. And they were like, oh, they're looking for a paranormal investigator. And I was like, okay. So I broke to them and they were like, yeah, yeah, come on. We we need someone um, that looks like you and all this kind of stuff. And I made $50 that day. And I was like, oh, okay. You know, I just love being on set. Like, I'm not going to question this. Is this even legal? Like, this is what they're allowed to pay me. What, is, what are they paying the other actors? And then they needed a demon. They didn't have anyone. So they asked my boyfriend to come on as the demon. <laughs> He's never acted in his life before. <laughs> he got more money because they reimbursed his gas. He got $75. <laughs> oh my what? So yeah, that was my my first acting experience on Paranormal 911. Um, no, I'm lying. Sorry, I should be very careful about that. It wow. Paranormal Survivor, Paranormal Survivor, Paranormal 911. That was actually a really great shoot. And um, yeah, so even with all of the hiccups and the learning experiences and then the negative experiences, I was just like, I just really loved it. So after that, I started looking for an agent and found an agent and you know, just started building my career and I've loved it ever since. And yeah, that's that's my crazy story. <laughs> I love it. What brought you into a career in social work? What was the drive to go into that field? So um, I had a really rough childhood, I'm sure as many of us do who go into social work. And, you know, having experience um, in the child welfare system, um, the limited, I will say the limited foster care experience that I had, and then being given back um, to my mom during a time where, you know, she was still learning to be a mom. My mom had me when she was 18 as well, and, um, you know, was going through her own traumas of her own childhood. And I love my mom to death and we have a great relationship today. Um, but I, I recognized as I got older that the system itself is so broken and it's way too medical model. It's not holistic enough. It doesn't actually take into consideration what we're feeling, like what we're actually feeling instead of just what we're thinking. And um, my dad, the man who raised me, um, not my biological father, but, um, you know, he was a biker uh, his whole life in and out of <laughs> jail. But I know it sounds crazy, but he was a hero to me. Like he was such a good father, even though he wasn't always present. Um, and really just kind of encouraged me to, you know, follow my dreams and to, you know, be proud of who I am and where I come from and and all those kinds of things and really kind of never lectured me was always like hey these are the experiences I've had you're a smart girl so here's your choices here's the consequences you kind of have to make your own choices so just from like my own life experiences of being a young mom you know being transiently transitionally housed also through my teenage years because I left home when I was 15 I just recognize that I wanted to support those people in a way uh, from a point of understanding, from a point of lived experiences. But I also needed the education and the technical backgrounds to do that. So that's what got me into social work. And, um, you know, having worked in it for over 15 years now, doing a number of different things from developmental services to child protection to addiction, mental health. Um, yeah, it's. It's been a journey for sure. I've learned a lot about myself. I've learned a lot about where we are lacking in those services as well. Um, and, you know, more recently now working as an onset therapist, because this is something that they're doing in the UK. It's amazing. They're doing a wonderful job of it. Canada always seems to be the last <laughs> to kind of jump on board with these things. And I'm not really sure why. 
Um, but I, you know, I worked on the set of Little Bird as an onset therapist. And first off, I just have to say that whole production team did such an amazing job of trying their best to make sure that the cast and the crew and everyone was supported. Um, and to be a part of that, to be able to give that support where I could really also helped me understand how much we are neglecting ourselves as actors in that that aspect. And that we do have coaches that, you know, will try to help us departmentalize and, you know, leave it at home. It's just the scene. But how can we do that as actors when we're bringing our own truth to those characters, right? And when so much of that for so many people may actually have happened in their life, because it's always, where have you seen it? Has it happened to you? Do you know someone it's happened to? Um, so yeah, so now it's, I'm shifting a little bit um, and trying to try to bridge <laughs> my two careers together. So I'm so happy that you're able to now talk about Little Bird. I was hoping we'd be able to talk about that. Yeah, I sound a little creepy um, because obviously I've been following you on Instagram and everything that I mean, okay. I've been doing. And I knew I knew that this was a part of your your life, but I didn't. I kind of was assuming that was the role that you were going to be involved with Little Bird. And I know it just came out. It was just released. Uh, I'm oh, so, yeah. so, so excited to chat with you about that, because I think like, what an incredible experience to, again, like you were saying, blend your two loves of being on set and acting but that also being able to and I'm going to put this assumption on because I hear it a lot from people and I feel this to feel like you're contributing to like overall well-being of something because I find as actors sometimes I feel like is what I'm doing actually anything important yeah, I can understand that. Like, I work in, as a doctor, and I'm like, that's important. And then I do like the acting stuff, and I'm like, this isn't really that important to society. And so there's, a, I feel like there's like a need sometimes to have that contribution. Where this, I think, is such a fascinating blend of all of that, but then also probably dealing with actors who are like, nothing is important of what I'm doing, and you're like, let me tell you, because I have experience in both. <laughs> Yeah, I think, you know, it's interesting because the first time that I worked as an onset therapist was actually for Ronald McDonald House um, Charities. And I did two of their campaigns, one for the Happy Meal and um, the second one, to be honest with you, it was, it was a bit ago, but it was, you know, giving back the charity donations or not giving back the charity donations, but, you know, saying thank you for the family saying thank you. And they had hired me because just specifically of that, because I had the onset experience as an actor, but also the therapeutic um, background. And it was interesting because when I first did the first one, we were trying to figure out, okay, how is this going to work? What is my role going to be? I guess we'll just kind of see how it goes. And what we really realized is when you're working with real people, and this is really important for production companies that are doing docudramas, I can't stress this enough. If if you are a casting director or a production company, this is something that we need to start recommending to have on set because we're talking about real people's lives. We're asking people to relive these experiences that they're going through, which is very traumatic. And we're not necessarily giving them the resources they need to ground those pieces of themselves again. Now, we can hope that the piece that people we're interviewing maybe have already gone through that process, but we don't really know. And unless you have that technical background, you you can't really assess what's happening for those people. And so what we found was when the families were explaining their stories of what brought them to Ronald McDonald House, why they're there currently still, you have directors saying, oh, you know, something happened with the sound. We have to cut, We, you know, and how do you let someone know that, okay, it isn't you. Sorry, you didn't do anything wrong. Your story is valid. Your story is important. I'm so sorry. I know you're in the middle of crying. You know, camera has stopped. You know, all of those things. Like, we, I don't really think that we had thought about that. 
So the fact that they, that the production team for that had already kind of preemptively said, okay, we need to make sure that we have people to support them um, was just outstanding to me because I'd never heard of it before. And I thought to myself, well, hold on a second, Ronald McDonald House, they must have the best psychologists, the best social workers. Like I, I was still trying to understand the need for, for my expertise. And it was more the fact of exactly what you said, bridging those two together. I also know what it's like to be on set. I know where the hot spots are. I know when to stay out of the way. I know when not to push and when to push. All of those things that are kind of needed as you're creating this project too, where a, a regular social worker who hasn't had any of those experiences may not know. And that was something that also we found on Little Bird um, as you know we reflected back on it was, okay, as a social worker, we want to help people pull those things out and you know find resolution or solutions that can help them process. But as an actor, sometimes you want to stay in it. Sometimes you need to stay in it for the character. So how do we then identify, oh, okay, you look upset, but you need to be upset. Okay, I'm walking away. I'll let you be in this and I'm here if you need to talk to me. So it's it's just really interesting for me also to be behind the camera because normally I'm in front of it. So yeah, I think it's just, it's such a great learning experience. And I really do hope that more, um, you know, directors and production teams and even casting directors, when they are asking people to do auditions for certain roles, that we're taking these things into account. Um, because if, uh, for anyone who has seen Little Bird, um, the story itself is heart-wrenching and beautiful. It, it you know, brings up so many emotions for in, for Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. I can only assume, won't speak for anyone, but I can only speak from my experience that that did for me. And even as a therapist who is, you know, has those technical skills, it was, I was still processing things, things that it brought up for me from my childhood that I didn't really realize were sitting underneath. And you know, I just think that it's one of those things that hopefully it will become mandatory, much like an intimacy coordinator, that when we are doing those types of things, that we have someone there. And I, I think that there's probably just the idea of regulations and things like that, not knowing how we go about doing that. But it is extremely important. Mm. Oh, my gosh. It, so much is, is going through my head. Uh, and like, of course, I think... Let me see if I can. Now I need to kind of get my thoughts aligned here. The big thing I find as somebody who, who excuse me, has learned is learning the act, learning how to act later on in life. Who I mean, and once we get to a certain age, we all have been through stuff, right? We've been through stuff. We, whether or not we are in therapy or able to process, et cetera, et cetera. Most of the people I've talked to who are in similar roles to me, second act actors, or coming into this later in life, feel that they can more comfortably get into deep emotions that they need to portray on set, on stage, in an audition, because they've experienced life. <laughs> but they also are more capable than their either younger peers or themselves when they were younger of saying, now I'm now cut has happened and I can pull myself out. And so all I can imagine is when this, like when intimacy coordination came in and now hopefully your role comes in, production is all about money. But I think for longevity of actors, being in this career safely and healthy, that is a financial gain to have somebody and saves money, I would assume, to have somebody like you on set for the longevity of an actor's career. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think it's, you know, it's the longevity, but it actually does save money on set while the production is happening. And the reason why I say that is because um, I won't get into details, but we did have a moment on Little Bird um, that if we hadn't had 
and, and I say we as 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 a team of all people who cared about each other. Um, if, if I hadn't have been on that set, I question. I don't know, but I question what would have happened in this crisis moment that had happened for one of the actors as they were processing something very real. Their body felt what was going on, and their their body didn't recognize that this wasn't really happening to them. And that's something that's very important as a, as we talk about trauma, um, because there is a difference be- between being trauma informed and being. So I'm I'm a certified clinical integrated trauma clinician, and that took me a very long time to get that accreditation. It's you know anyone can be trauma informed if they've listened to a one hour trauma session. All of a sudden now you're trauma informed, right? So it's really important that people understand first off the differences between the two. Knowing how to process trauma in a crisis situation with a very short time period because people are wrapping up, they need to move on to the next scene, they don't have time to, you know, work through this. You know, sometimes, you know, therapy sessions take take an hour, right? Usually get an hour for therapy session. In this case, we had about 10 minutes to get this this poor actor um, through this processing. And we were able to do it with myself and support of other people on the production crew. Um, we did it. And the next day, you know, we debriefed with the actor. How are you feeling? No, nope, I'm good. But it's because I was able to help her body release what it needed to release versus a narrative mindset of, okay, you're okay. You know, tell me what's going on. But the body is still feeling those things, right? So somatic therapy is really important when we are on set. So not only, yes, absolutely, it's the longevity of the actors, but imagine if she hadn't been able to pull out, pull out of that situation and bring herself back, right? So then it's overtime for actors, overtime for the crew because they can't move sets, they can't change lighting because she's literally frozen and stuck, right? Or he is, you know, in a place where his mind is now paralyzed, right? So it's really important that production also understands that there are financial gains, um, not just in longevity of actor, but the actual production itself and how it saves money. Even just having some of the feedback we got was there were people on set that didn't utilize my services, but just knowing that I was there allowed them to be in the scene to be in the character and reflect back after and say, nope, I'm actually okay. But if I needed it, I knew it was there. And the other thing is it actually allows, the, I, the, the other thing that production, um, you know, we usually don't understand is that we're still humans. We still have lives outside of acting. And it does affect our acting. I mean, yes, we're professionals. And yes, you know, we have are held to a certain standard. But if someone's just lost uh, a family member and they need to go on to set the next day, they're trying to hold everything together. They're they're trying to be as professional as they can. But if there's somebody on set that can help them at least process some of those feelings, it allows that actor now to have the capacity to do their role. And the same for crew. It's not just about the actors. It's about the whole production team. It's about the crew as well, because you know, you may have crew that will come onto set that are seeing what we're filming and either have never experienced it. So, for instance, there was um, some non-Indigenous people on the set of Little Bird who had no idea about the true impact of residential schools or the true impact of the 60s scoop. And they're watching this play out and they're in their minds are like, oh, my goodness. I, you know, I've had crew members say, I feel so guilty you know, all of these things. And so helping them process those pieces too. So that way they can do their job to the best quality that they are able to perform. So there's a lot of, a lot of financial gains. I think if we are looking at it from a business perspective, because it is a business and I think that we do need to do that. Um, so yeah, so I, I hope that they don't just see it as, okay, well, actors can go and if they need therapy or if they need something, go get it after. Like, well, what kind of quality of work do you want? right? Because if we can get in at a certain number of takes, amazing. But if their head is somewhere else, and we've seen this happen before, where, you know, directors say, okay, where are you? What's going on? Right? 
but they don't have time to explain, well, this happened and I'm going through this because we feel like then we're not being professional. Then we're not going to get rehired. Then we aren't doing our jobs, right? And we put so much pressure on ourselves as actors to perform. So I think that, you know, if we look at it from that perspective of, yes, emotional safety, we do it with a, with an intimacy coordinators, emotional safety, but also it does create a better business plan. So if you have a therapist, you know, right from the beginning in the sense of when you do your budgeting, when you do your proposals, your fundry, your, your raising for funds and all this kind of stuff, have that sectioned in already. So then you're not worried about it afterwards of where are you going to find the funding? How are we going to pay this person? And to recognize that writers might need it. Production team might need it. We don't know what they're going through as well, right? Even an executive producer coming on set could see something and it could trigger trigger them. So this is something that we want to start doing right from the get-go. Not an afterthought, but building it into the process as you would hiring a casting director, as you would any of those things. And I think that productions will see a benefit to it. Yeah, it's so interesting when I've talked to intimacy coordinators and intimacy directors in the theater space, I think so much of the pushback they've gotten is, you know, they're kind of like the no fun police. And um, but everything like you said, it's, it's the same thing with intimacy coordination. Everything about them being there and you being there is about making the production better. better Absolutely. Because we are here. Everything about it will be better. And if that's all the that and that's all that's the only thing that production should need in order to justify that. Be like, this will be a better production in every way, shape, and form. Perfect. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So interesting. My science brain is tingling because you were talking about the somatic body response. And I love that about, again, when I first worked with an intimacy director in a play, it was learning how like my body doesn't know the difference between acting intimate mm-hmm. with this person and for real. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? Just for, again, most of the people listening to this are new actors entering in a greater vintage and may not have experience with being so vulnerable with our emotions. Yeah, I think um, I can also just start off with my own experience that I've had so many traumas in my life. So technically, medically, I have complex PTSD. And so if we break it down into the three. I'll try to be as layman as I can for people to understand. There's three There's three categories that they have as of the moment, I'm sure more will come, of trauma. So you have developmental trauma, complex PTSD, and then PTSD, because everybody has just kind of used PTSD as like a one brush thing, but it's not. So developmental trauma is when trauma has happened during the time where a child's brain is forming. And that actually can create what we would consider an organic brain injury, meaning that that brain is not going to function as a normal, healthy brain would. And then there is complex PTSD, where people have had a number of traumas throughout their lifetime. And then there's PTSD, where it's one single event, like maybe somebody got into a car accident, and now they're afraid to drive. Um, So... When we talk about it in that sense, we have to look at it from a point of perspective of when did the traumas happen, how many of the traumas have happened, and you know it could be the small the, what one would consider like um, a, a lesser impact or a higher impact, but we can never judge how that actually is going to impact someone. Right? This, you know, something that one would consider to be very small could have a huge impact on someone. And the important piece to developmental as we talk about the brain and the body bringing those two together is that we stay in a state of fight or flight, which is in the reptilian part of our brain, which is kind of down at the the back of the the neck and top of the spine. Um, And the body doesn't know whether or not we're still in that harmful state. So what ends up happening is... um, 
for instance, if someone gets into an, ab- an abusive fight with another person and it happens in, you know, what they would consider a safe, a safe place, all of a sudden that safe place may not be safe anymore. So let's say it happened in a kitchen. Um, any other time that they may go to another person's house or, you know, they may say, hey, can you come help me in a the kitchen? Their body immediately may go into a, a position of like, okay, um, I don't know if I'm comfortable with this. And we get anxious. We can't necessarily identify why, because maybe the people we're with are fine. It's not the same kitchen. It happened years ago. But we start like, what is this feeling that we're getting? Well, it's because our body still is trying to warn us, you might be in a state of harm because this is the smell or the place or the sound where those things happen. So what somatic therapy does is it answers to the body. So essentially, the work that I do is rewiring the brain to believe that the event occurred differently. So there's a long process to that, a very specific model that we use. But essentially, we get the person to answer the question of, what did you need to have happen in that moment? So instead of that person, you know, uh, grabbing your arm really tightly, what did you need to have happen? Where I needed to have them say that it was okay, and I needed to have them hug me instead. I needed... So we go through the five senses of the body so the body can feel it in that sense of happening. Now, it's important to understand that it doesn't remove <laughs> the event. It We will still have feelings about the event, but the trigger is now extinguished because our body has felt what it needed to feel in that moment for us to feel safe. So there's, I mean, there's a, I, that's very simplifying it. There's a lot of work that goes into somatic therapy, but it's very helpful for people with any form of PTSD because we have to answer to what the body needs first. And what's really interesting is we do that with children, yet we stop doing it with adults. So when kids are throwing tantrums and things like that as therapists, we don't say to them, well, tell me, tell me what you're, you know, tell me what you are feeling. Tell me about the event. Because kids just get angry. I don't know what I'm feeling. Okay, cool. Why don't we just stomp on the ground and stomp it out and we'll scream and we'll throw a ball against a wall. And then we bring them to that point of of exhaustion where their body has released that tension. And then we say, okay, what does your body need now? I want to play now. Okay, right? But we stop doing that with adults because we think adults have a capacity to explain everything. And we do to a point. But sometimes we do get in a position where like, I don't know why I'm feeling anxious. I just am. Okay, then let's answer to what your body needs. Let's let's do the narrative later. And we've also realized through studies that sometimes, especially with veterans, narrative is not helpful. Having them to relive that, relive that, relive that over and over again. And even from my own experiences as a person who, you know, had to start doing therapy at the age of five because of my childhood. Having to re-explain myself over and over again, one, either can desensitize me sometimes, it leads to distrust in a therapist, and why do I want to have to relive that? Why do I want to continuously re-victimize myself? And I just use that for my own terms. That, that's not helpful to me. It's not helpful. I want, I want to stop feeling what I'm feeling, or I want it to be easier to move forward in this. And so somatic therapy, I think, in conjunction with other types of therapy, psychotherapy, EMBR, um, you know, even narrative therapy is really fantastic. I'm not saying the other therapies aren't good. Every therapy has a purpose and a place. I just think that we need to do it from a holistic perspective instead of just trying to tell people that we need this cognitive behavioral stuff. Um, and that that's going to cure it all. And I think that's a very old school mentality. I would hope that a lot of therapists are getting away <laughs> from just thinking one therapy can, can you know, cure people because there is, when it comes to PTSD, there isn't curing. You just, you learn how to work through situations differently and you just really build a good kind of toolbox for yourself. And then you can start to recognize things within your own body because we're answering to what we feel. Was like, oh, okay. I feel tightness in my chest. Oh, I know this feeling. I know what this is about, right? 
And then it's easier for us to be able to answer those questions. It's so, oh my gosh, it's so fascinating. And I think as an aside, we in medical school, I went to McMaster, which is like the most hippy dippy medical school. We had to, required reading was the body keeps the score. It was a talk about how a lot of this is controversial, like what the, within the medical community, but like more of a dialogue about it. Anyways, but a lot of it was about that and dealing with PTSD in the veteran population, et cetera, et cetera. But what I'm, I'm wondering if you could just give an example or even like back to the experience that you had a li- little bird. If people are on set and they're doing a scene that's causing them to have a body visceral reaction or they don't even know what's going on. Can you give us a couple like quick examples or tips and tricks about or what you did in that moment when you had 10 minutes with this actor. Are there any, is there any advice you can give or tips and tricks for actors? Yeah, I, I think these are, yeah, and I think this is actually, um, really anyone can use this. Um, you don't have to be an actor. But when you're answering to what your body needs, it's about, okay, I kind of look at it from, does your body need, do you feel like you need to yell? Or do you feel like you want to just curl into yourself? Those are kind of the two um, scaling questions um, that I will ask. If it is the idea of, no, I feel like I'm going to freak out and I'm going to yell, that means that there's tension that our body wants to get out. So what I brought to set was things like therabands, weighted blankets. Um, We had gravity chairs on set as well to help people lift the tension off their bodies. Um, and other, other ways you can do it if you're doing it from a therapeutic perspective is ball pits, uh, anything that will give a little bit of pressure, but on set, we use the TheraBands. Um, we use the weighted blanket because our body's going to go through a transition of different things that it may need in that moment. Um, it was about, you know, pulling the TheraBand and, you know, jumping up and down and just screaming and saying the things we needed to say to let the body release that. Then we went into, okay, do you feel same, better, or worse? We don't ask them to explain anything because that brings them back into their left brain and we want to just answer to the right right brain, right? So same, better, or worse? To be honest with you, I've never had anyone say worse. I've had people say same um, and better. So same just means that there's more they need to get out. So it'd be the same thing, using therabands, jumping up and down, screaming. If there's room where they can throw a ball against a wall, let's do that. Really getting that tension out. And then the transition went into, now I've crashed. Now I feel like I just want someone to hug me. So that's where the weighted blanket comes in, really. Um, And you can put that weighted blanket, you get them to pull it so tight around their body, like they feel like they're getting a hug. Um, and they just do that until the point where their body has exhausted or they feel a sense of calm. And then we ask again, same, better, worse. So we only move on to the next transition if they, if they're saying, you know, I'm feeling better. Then we move on to the grounding work of, okay, I want you to look at me. I want you to say something very positive to yourself. Like I am safe. I have supports around me. And we tap that in with the bilateral tapping so that way both actionable parts of our brains are functioning or we can do hand over heart. And it's always about connection. It's always about connecting ourselves to ourselves and then saying those things. And then at the end, again, saying better, worse. And then we go through that. And if they're better, then we talk about something that's funny. I don't like to use, you know, tell me about a happy moment because some people, we're not talking necessarily about actors, um, but when we're talking about, uh, you know, people who need support, may not have a lot of happy memories. So it's the idea of, okay, tell me about something funny. And that's why I say laughter is the best medicine because it really regulates our body. It brings us back into that good focus of our frontal lobes. And then we can kind of just shake it off afterwards. And you can get through that process fairly quickly. And then do the narrative, do the debriefing after. So that's what we did in that crisis moment um, with the actor. And we were able to get through it pretty quickly. We were able to debrief because the answer to what the body. And then we 
later the next day or when you have a moment to say, okay, do you want to talk about anything? No, I'm actually okay. Okay, great. If you do, I'm around. And it's it's such an interesting process because that can literally be done anywhere. Like the bilateral tapping is really handy. So even if someone's sitting on the bus and they're feeling a bit anxious, just to, you know, you tap your hands as if you're listening to music on your thighs and you just are in your head saying good things. Like, and you're looking around at things that can ground you. So, okay, I'm on the bus. I can hear the music. I can feel the seat. I can, you know, you're bringing back to those five senses. And that's always really important about answering to what the body needs as you go through those five senses of like, okay, what are you hearing right now? I'm hearing this. Okay, what are you seeing right now? I'm seeing this. Okay, how does your body feel? I feel same, better, worse. And we just keep going through that. So those are things that I think if people are a little bit um, worried about a scene and they don't have a therapist on set, one, I think actors need to start asking. They need to start asking, will there be an onset therapist? I think it's also going to come from a push from us. Um, And it's okay to ask for that. I think we get worried that people won't see us as professionals um, if we are are, asking for these things. Um, But you can bring your own therabands. You can bring your own weighted blanket. We could have these as our toolkits to say, okay, this is just what my body needs in this moment. So I can, okay. You know, and to really think of that, that safe space. And when I say safe space, you know, thinking of that place where you feel the safest, sometimes it's by the water, that might be your grandma's home, it might be anything and using your five senses of what does it feel like? What does it sound like? What does it smell like? If it has a taste, what does it taste like? And if it has, if you can feel it, then what does it feel like? Right. And that really helps us ground in those moments. So I think that's honestly the easiest way for actors to kind of have their own toolkit when going into those situations. Oh, that's so helpful and just lovely. I think, yeah, and I think you're 100% correct about the advocacy piece, right? Like the idea that the more we ask for, the less we're going to get hired. But again, it comes down to like we've been talking about production's going to get better quality work out of every single person involved if we mm-hmm. advocate for what we need on set. Damn. I would love to talk a bit more about your experience as an actor and coming into this industry with the background you have personally and professionally. Has there been anything that has surprised you entering this industry in your quote unquote second act? (laughs) Oh, I think there's been a lot actually that has surprised me. I think more or less it's, the idea of how much maybe it's I say this from a commercial perspective first how much clients don't know when coming into a space and hiring actors um and you know asking for things that in my head I'm like who wrote this like you know I'm I'm probably never gonna get hired again just see that's what I'm sure casting directors and other other actors are like feeling the same. Um, and I think it's, you know, you you sometimes get these breakdowns. And I think one of the things that surprised me and one of the things I still talk about with my acting coach is this doesn't make any sense. This this doesn't make any sense. How do I even play this? Or if you get something where the writing is is super bad, you know, and and you're just I think in my head when I got into acting that I was like, everybody is going to put out the same quality of work that I'm trying to put out. And you recognize that that's just not true. (laughs) And then you're trying to do your best with what you have and how do you, you know, bring yourself into a character that in your heart doesn't make sense. And so I think um, also the other thing that has surprised me is how much I've had to challenge myself. You know, I think when we get into this, every, and I, I will admit I was one of those people too, where I was like, oh, acting, you know, I can cry, it'll be fine. <laughs> but surprisingly, like, it is a serious job. And I it, it really kind of bothers me when they're like, oh, you're an actor. I'm like, it's work. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of time. It's a lot of dedication. Um, 
and also how underpaid <laughs> actors are when they first start out. People, you know, we, I, my boyfriend's friend will every once in a while um, be like, oh, yeah, you know, you guys must be doing really well. Like, I saw Nadia, you know, got this commercial or got this role. Like, you know, you guys must be just raking in the dough. And we're like, no, like, we still have school debt we're paying off. What are you talking about? You know, and that it's really this one percent, this one percent of actors that are, are, you know, Jennifer Lopez's, Tom Cruise's, and that a lot of us do have second jobs, and we are putting a lot of ourselves into this. Um, so I would say, yeah, I think that's probably the thing that ha- has surprised me the most is how much actual work and dedication does need to go into being an actor, and that not everybody is going to put in the same dedication as you do. To make things work. And it is frustrating. <laughs> but I guess like any other career, right? Um, you're always going to have that. So it's like the group project mentality, right? There's always those people. Yeah, that. Like so excited. Well, not excited, but like there's always those people who know they'll get a good grade because they know there's people in the group who will do all the work. And yeah. it's every career. You hit the nail on the head, right? I think. Yeah. Well, with that being said, do you have any advice for people who are interested in starting an acting career later on in their um, in their journey in this wonderful life we have? I would say kindness. Like you need to gift yourself that kindness. Being aware of the percentage of rejection that you are going to get um, and to understanding that it's really not personal. It, it, you know, you're going to have so many auditions and you'll be lucky if you, you know, book one out of every you know, 30 that you may get, um, you know, more. I mean, it's harder with commercial auditions versus, you know, film TV because they're not uh, seeing as many people for film and TV. But it is one of those things that I would say gift yourself kindness, patience, and know that this is a long term journey. Like I have friends who have been in this for, you know, they started as young kid actors and are only now really what they would consider making it, building a career of it now in their 30s. Um, Now, that's not to say that's everybody's journey. Um, And there's some amazingly talented people out there who are still fighting to to get their foot in the door. So to really know that if you're getting into this, this is long term. It's, you know, once in a while, somebody might have an overnight success. That has not been my experience. <laughs> but, um, and to, you, you gotta, you just gotta bet on yourself and stay true to yourself. And you, we're going to hear so many different opinions of, oh, you should wear this on sets or in auditions or, you know, I never do this. I, you know, oh, really? Because I like, I don't wear that color. Like everybody's experience is going to be different. And so you being unique to yourself, to who you are, is what is eventually going to make you shine. And I think that was something I learned the hard way because, you know, I would see other people on my roster doing really well. So that I would examine, I'd be like, okay, I wonder what they're doing in their auditions. And I wonder, you know, how often do they, you know, practice even when they don't have a self-tape like how do they do their memory and yeah absolutely sharing information can be helpful but it can also be very harmful to oneself if we're actually not utilizing it in a way that's true to us and so you know when we look at actors if you look at ryan reynolds if you look at denzel washington if you look at margot robbie if you look at any of the people that most of us are like oh my god i want to be upset with them one day you can tell when Ryan Reynolds is in a movie. Ryan Reynolds is always Ryan Reynolds. Whether he's playing actor or sorry, whether he's in an action movie, whether he's in a comedy, he always has a very distinct sound to his voice. He always has a very distinct way that he brings along, you know, with Denzel Washington. They're completely two separate different people. And they're they're both taking up that space. There's a lot of shared space. So, you know, really just being true to yourself is the biggest key, I think, for for people getting into acting. Like, don't lose yourself. There's something really amazing and special about you. And not everybody's going to see that. And that's okay. 
it, you know, it just wasn't, it honestly just wasn't meant for you. And I know that's such a cliche saying, but you just have to bet on yourself, show yourself that kindness and know that you're in this for the long run. <laughs> like it is a long game. So you gotta, you gotta play it that way. Do you have any favorite um, or funny or just memorable on-set stories or memories? We've already talked about some beautiful ones that you've been involved in, but any others? So this one actually is kind of scary. <laughs> so when I was filming um, Haunted Museum, there was a scene where um, my hair starts falling out. And at this point... Um, you know, there's some things that are going on in the house. So if anyone hasn't seen it, go check out the first season of Haunted Museum, episode nine, um, the Dibbit Fox. It, you can even Google it. There's a crazy story about it. And, um, my, you know, I'm supposed to, my hair is falling out and I'm really getting sick. And we're, we're pulling out the hair and I'm supposed to drop it on the floor. And you know, they're doing the cleanup after so we can rehearse again and they're trying to find the hair and the hair just disappeared. Like there's nowhere for the hair to go. Like it, it literally would have just fallen right in front of me. We did not move. Nothing had happened. And it's like the hair was just gone. And we're like, what the heck happened to it? So, you know, we had to get more hair and, it, you know, after that, like it was fine. And then later on in the day, they're cleaning up. And one of the design dress dress uh, wardrobe people comes up and she goes, "Oh, I found I found the hair it was like over in some other corner of the living room." And I was like, "How would it even have gotten there? Like there was no fans." And she brings me the hair, and I knew what the hair looked like because it was very like intentional, you know, fake hair. And she brings it over, and I look at it and I go, "That's not the hair." And she's like, well, "Whose hair is this?" I said, "I have no idea." But that's not even like that is not the right color. And that's not that's not the hair. And it wasn't even like it could have been the homeowner's hair because it was like a clump, like a clump of like the, what was coming out of my. And to this day, we're still like, we have no idea where the hair went. We don't know why that hair showed up. And I just think to myself, if if there was ever a time where I'm like, I'm I'm good. I'm good to not go back into that house ever again. <laughs> that would be it. That would be it. So Eli Roth, good one if you pulled that joke. Good one for you. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty scary. Yeah, we were all just like freaked out about it. And yeah, so I mean, I'm sure I've had lots of funny moments, but that definitely was a moment I'll never forget. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's insane. Yeah. Now, you've talked a bit about, you know, people in your life. Would they now, would they describe you as an actor or how would they describe what you do for a living? I'm talking like loved ones, guardians, people in your life. Did they say, oh, yeah, Nadia, she's an actor. You know, that's a very good question. And I think that my family has a really difficult time explaining what I do, more so because of the fact that I do a lot of things. So I'm a therapist. I'm an activist, I'm a public speaker, and I'm an actor. I myself am still uncomfortable with saying actor first. And I think it's because I've done the therapy work for so long that that's kind of how I've identified myself. And my activism is very much a part of my story, my lived experiences in my life. And acting is like this thing that I love to do and I do hope it turns into a full-time career one day so I think when my like actually it's interesting we were at a store the other day and the owner of the store was looking and she's like I know you from somewhere and I I'm very weirded out by saying like oh yeah I like this person and I'm on Instagram because it's it's just not this is that's just not me and anyone who's met me will I hope will agree that I I try to be as humble as possible about that stuff and so my partner, though, uh, my boyfriend did, he he would be like, oh, no, she's she's a public figure. So that's kind of how I find most people kind of coin me is I'm a public figure. And then they go into dot, 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 dot. 
So it was like, oh, no, she's being, you know, she's just being modest. Nadia is a public figure. She's actually an actor. And, you know, she advocates for a lot of really great initiatives. And she, you know, she's on Instagram. And then she was like, oh, yeah, actually, I do. I follow you on Instagram, my son. And then it was like this whole piece. And it is like, you know, those kind of cool moments where you're like, oh, that's kind of cool. <laughs> but um, I, I guess that's how they they would describe me like my mom will say I'm an activist first because I think there's an emotional piece to that my my one sister says I'm an actor she will always put actor first and so I think it really just depends on what they attach to what they find the most exciting what they are maybe most proud of so yeah it actually differentiates I think from friends to family but usually it's either it's either one of those three activist actor or public figure Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's all. I think that's so cool. And I think as an aside, I think I don't know of anybody on the planet who follows you on Instagram who would call you anything but like, not humble, but like nobody would say you're not humble. I think your Instagram is so wonderful. Oh, thank so you. Wonderful. It's like exciting and positive and, you know, intimate and vulnerable. And I, again, I, I I thoroughly enjoy it. (laughs) Oh, thank you. I learn a ton from you as well, too, right? Um, Which I think a lot of us, especially these days, are just craving knowledge because I think we're learning so much about this world and we're learning how much we don't know. And uh, especially about lived experiences of a lot of people who we just haven't learned about, right? So, yeah, I appreciate what you're doing for sure. Do you have anything you are looking forward to coming up? It doesn't need to be just acting. It can be anything in your incredible life. Yeah, I am actually really, I will be going out um, to uh, Sault Ste. Marie in September with one of the organizations that I'm an ambassador of. And I'm going to do some, some drop name dropping here. Um, Water First, because I really feel everybody should look up Water First, uh, what they do for um, you know, youth is amazing and how they collaborate with Indigenous communities and really taking the time to listen to what the community needs versus kind of going in there and saying, okay, this is what we're going to do for you. Because that's where I think we, you know, where allies have gotten it wrong in the past is they're really just not listening and they feel like they have all the answers. Um, so there will be a graduation happening for those who graduated from the water and internship program. And I've been trying to get out there for two years, but a lot other obligations have always gotten in the way. And this year I'll be able to make it. So I'm really just looking forward to hearing about, you know, the, the students' journeys, um, learning from them, hearing their stories, hearing about their hopes for the future, how they plan on you know, utilizing the education they have now, what they thought about the programs. Because I, every time I go somewhere and I volunteer or I donate my time or I'm in, you know, in a community, I, I just learn so much about myself. And it really helps me challenge my unconscious biases, the things that we don't even recognize that we've grown up with or learned over time, you know, thinking that like, you know, every convenience store in a certain area because we've seen it in the movies that that's how it's going to be you know all of these unconscious biases that we have and I love that like you said like that knowledge seeking that knowledge learning um but also being able to share it I mean what good is knowledge if we don't share it with others keeping it to ourselves doesn't do anything so I'm really looking forward to that I'm looking forward to listening to their stories and learning from them and just continuing to grow. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. So that's something I am very much looking forward to. That sounds amazing. That is so cool. And do you have, I guess, if there's anything else you're looking forward to from an acting standpoint, definitely everyone needs to see Little Bird. Oh my gosh. I have it see. Yes. This is my weekend plan. I'm like, this is my, it's my binge plan. I just read an article, I think it was in the CBC, about one of the episodes where they talk about, um, I think it was the director saying they wanted to film it like a horror movie. Yeah, I haven't read that article. Yeah, I haven't read that article, um, but I can tell you the directors, uh, you know, were amazing. 
Um, these two women put all of themselves into the episodes that they were a part of. And I hold so much respect, so much respect for them. Um, and, you know, the idea of, you know, I'm just so honored and humbled that I could be a part of that. In regards to looking forward to something and acting, you know, I actually did take a quite of a big break. I pulled back from my career in acting for the last kind of six months um, just to do some healing for myself through some of the things that I've been through in the last year, you know, reconnecting on my own reconnecting journey um, as a as a mixed Indigenous person. And so I think maybe just getting back into it, <laughs> you know, uh, I've started doing, uh, I guess, I've started doing some auditions um, again and, you know, getting back into um, coaching. But coaching is an interesting thing for me because, again, I feel like I learn a lot. But it is very challenging when you've been out of it for some time and you're like, okay, it's almost like, okay, you got to train those brain muscles again to like start doing things and like making sure you're not acting and like all that kind of stuff. So I think I'm actually just looking forward to the challenge of getting back into it, um, pushing myself again and hopefully, yeah, hopefully getting back on set and being able to just work with some awesome people doing some fun stuff um, and hopefully reading some really great scripts. Do you have any final words of wisdom or advice? Oh, I always like get stuck on this question more so because question here on sensei sensei. No, Um, I think one of the things that I just want to tell actors is, you know, to keep themselves, to keep them safe. I, I can't express how many times I get emails through my website around, oh, we've got this project. We'd love for you to be a part of it. Um, this is what it's going to pay. We're going to fly you out, this and that. So I, I think, honestly, the last little bit I would want to leave is kind of for people who are really um, yearning to be actors or are new in the acting field to just always question these emails. We see, you know, so many of our women um, going missing and, you know, with just such a high, sadly, trafficking rate. Um, I, I just, yeah, I just hope that young actors and new actors or even those who have been in it a while and we get excited, right? We get excited that somebody might be interested in us. Um, that would be the last piece of knowledge I would just like to leave is really be careful, scrutinize everything, look at the email. If you have a friend who has an agent, even if they're not yours, say, Hey, I got this. I just want to double check about it. Um, and just even on set, like being more comfortable to say, no, I'm not comfortable with this. This doesn't feel right to me. No, I, I, you know, I, you know, there was an experience now, in fairness, I was okay with it. I was fully okay with it. I, we had discussed it a little bit prior to the filming of the kissing scene. It wasn't in the scene originally. Um, my agent was kind of notified last minute. So all of it went really, really well. Um, and I was asked, are you comfortable with this? We'll notify our agent, all this kind of stuff. But every once in a while, you may get on set where those things are going to happen. People are going to flip the script. They're going to ask you to do something that you may feel like, oh, I guess I should just do this because maybe this is my first acting scene or I really want to impress the director or any of those things. But again, it comes back to what is your body feeling and answering to that. And if you're not comfortable with it, then we got it. We have to be more comfortable. Or, uh, and it's hard. It, it's hard to find that bravery, but to say no and to also be watching out and standing up for our fellow actors when things like that happen or when things are said that are inappropriate or, you know, somebody does something that you can clearly see might have harmed or hurt someone else. We really got to start speaking up and standing up as a team. Um, I think, you know, in the acting world can feel like, you know, we're just all fighting for the same thing and fighting in a sensory against each other. 
because we are. I mean, we are competing in a way. But, you know, it's such for such a big industry, it is a really small community and people will remember things. They will remember you and they will remember how you behaved on set. Um, so I think, yeah, protecting ourselves and just really being careful about the etiquette that we are allowing to have happen and that we are also, you know, doing ourselves as well on set. So that would be, well, that's more than one word, so wisdom, but <laughs> those are my final thoughts. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. And thank you, Nadia, for being my guest this week. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your incredibly busy schedule to share your story with me and with my listeners. Like I said at the top of the episode, folks, go to her social media and follow her. There's so much dumpster fire garbage in this world. And what Nadia is doing is dousing that dumpster fire. She's a literal light with the advocacy work that she's doing on this planet, as well as the art that she's putting into this planet with her acting, et cetera, et cetera. She's absolutely wonderful. Thank you again, Nadia. I hope you'll all tune in next week for another episode of Second Act Actors. Bye.